This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I'm Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company this Friday afternoon. And uh, we're going to be checking in with the pastoralists in the West Dar- from the West Darling area. They met with their ag minister in New South Wales to talk electronic ID tags in sheep yesterday. And I thought we might get some sort thoughts from South Australian graziers as well. And I know a lot of producers don't see how that's going to benefit them if they're just breeding a lamb that runs in the paddock and then goes straight to the processes that, that they're having to have that extra cost with actually not seeing any benefit. Some thoughts there from South Australians. But uh, in the meantime, more than 80 graziers and landholders from across western New South Wales gathered in Broken Hill yesterday to voice their concerns about mandatory electronic livestock tagging in sheep. The New South Wales Agriculture Minister, Dougald Saunders, met with the Pastoralist Association of West Darling and other graziers. Port President Terry Smith was pleased there was a concession in one area. One of the main issues was, was around tagging of wild harvested rangers and goats. Uh, and what that, what that was, and and I and I guess the upshot of all that is, if you haven't had to tag your goats in the past that you've been you've been selling, then you won't have to tag them in the future. If you're, you know, if you fit into the wild, wild harvested rangeland goat category at the moment, then you won't need to tag your goats going forward. But if you've got farm goats per se, if you've got, um, yeah, like feral. For on any base, and you're putting war goats or or red, Kalahari reds in there, then then you'll be required to tag, as you would have already been, um, moving forward. So that was that was one issue that was was um, I guess was a bit a bit cloudy, but it was it was it was sort of cleared up well and truly yesterday, which is good, and like that's a win for the goat industry, I think. Another issue that's been raised is the need for. traceability tags to be put on sheep that are going directly from a property to a meatworks. There have been arguments around whether there is any benefit in that. I understand this is a a topic you've raised as well. What did the Minister say to that? Uh, I think the answer to that is still a little bit unclear. I mean, some people are saying that that this is not set in stone and, and they're still working their way through it. For all intents and purposes, it looks like it is set in stone and um, the mandate's going to roll through, and everything that is currently tagged would still would, would have an RFID tag. Now, what the pastors are pushing for is a hybrid system of, of I guess, a smart ENVDs that um, upload automatically to the database, and maintaining the visual tag in in animals that go direct from property of birth to the works, and, and that's and that's sheep and goats, farm goats would have that would have that pathway to go direct from the property that they're born on to the works because we can't see any gain in traceability at all by putting a $2 tag in their ear and sending them straight straight to the works. Uh, if they go through a sale yard or go through the auction system, absolutely, RFID tags will help. If there's an exotic disease outbreak, it certainly will help trace you know um, any other issues that, that we come across. But I think in that instance where it's just one transaction, then it's... It seems pointless to put this $2 tag in here just to cut it off at the other end. And all these negotiations that you've been doing have been with the New South Wales Agriculture Minister. Each state is going about this in a slightly different way. South Australia's approach has been a little different to the New South Wales approach. 
How concerning is it for perhaps uh, people who live near the border, like the, the far west of New South Wales people, about how the, the various different states' approaches to this are going to affect the rollout of this mandate? I think the only way it'll get support is that it's a national... Like, if it's a national mandate, then there needs to be national rules. Um, it's pretty much that simple. But, uh, no, we, we're aware of, this, of, um, of support for hybrid systems, certainly in, like, in the southeast. I think there's a meeting at Narracourt, uh, I'm just not sure whether before Christmas or after Christmas, where producers were, were calling for the same thing. I know there's support for a hybrid system coming out of Queensland and Western Australia, uh, but it just doesn't seem to be getting any, any recognition um, from the powers to be, and, that, and that's really disappointing that our elected, our elected representatives aren't listening to the grassroots producers on this issue because we feel that um, we can achieve the same traceability outcomes without this huge cost. To producers and, and and don't 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 get me wrong here. The, the cost is going to be significant, and it's going to be ongoing for producers. Like it's not going to be one-off setup cost. It's going to be every year we're going to have to buy these tags at two dollars or whatever the cost settles at. Everyone who buys rams is going to need an RFID reader of some description and also some access to the database. So the Pastors Association can see it being you know, more costly and, and certainly more time-consuming going forward with the system and yeah, you know, as it stands at the moment. The whole motivation behind this, as you've mentioned, is to control an exotic disease outbreak, should there be one in Australia. Having exemptions and hybrid systems, though, do you think that could undermine the overall system and therefore render it useless if, if everyone isn't involved? If the vendor decks are automatically uploaded, and I think, yeah, I think some of the failings of the system at the moment are uh, the information is not being uploaded to the database. Um, whether that's producers or processors or whoever. So if, if the vendor decks, the e-decks were automatically, that information automatically uploaded when they had connectivity, then that should, yeah, that should maintain traceability probably better than what it is now and, and possibly even better than under an RFID tag system that's still up to the, up to the, yeah, up to the vendor to, to upload, manually upload the tag numbers. Like it, it's only as, the system's only as good as the people that are, that are putting information in, but if an electronic vendor system was automatically uploading, then that, that would take that human error or complacency, I guess, out of the system and should still provide you know, reasonable traceability, I would have thought. At the moment, the, yeah, the cost of a tag is a little bit over $2 each, and the, we haven't seen any costings for the, for the industry of this system because uh, at, at this stage, there's no, there's no costings being done because the national... Um, tag tender process hasn't been followed through where the, where the federal government will issue out a tender for a certain amount of tags. So we don't, we don't know what that cost is. Um, the powers of B are saying that it'll be lower than $2.05, but we don't know that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's one of those things to ask, um, to ask us to, to jump on board when we don't, we, we don't know what, what the cost is going to be. I mean, the, the producers um, are going to wear the cost of the tags and the cost of any hardware they need to require. They're also going to, um, yeah, if sale yards are put in added infrastructure, then they can pass that cost back down the chain through higher sale yard fees. The um, the processes, the works, they, if they need to upgrade their infrastructure, they can, you know, just discount um, discount carcasses until such time as they pay for that infrastructure, and it's, that's a one-off cost. But for the for the producers that cost is every year. It's generational. 
um, and yeah, it, it's going to be there for the next however many years. And it's and if it's two dollars a head, well, it's basically at the start of the year you've got to pay two dollars a head for every animal that you want to you want to breed for that year. So it's it's, it's basically a tax on the industry that's that's fully entrenched. That is the Pastoralist Association of West Darling President Terry Smith speaking there. And just some uh, details around the, the funding that the government's put forward. The Australian government has uh, put down $46.7 million to co-invest in the reforms. That includes $20 million to support on and off-farm traceability movements, uh, including the ID sheep and uh, goat tags, as well as the uh, $26.6 million to support the upgrades to the database. So there is some money there, but uh, when you've got about uh, 78 million sheep in this country, um, there's still a long way to go when it comes to actually working out how much this is going to cost. Now, looking at, at what this means in a South Australian setting, as part of a visit to the York Peninsula with Country Cabinet Minister for Primary Industries Claire Scriven visited a local property to gain a better understanding of electronic tagging. York Peninsula livestock farmer Natasha Westbrook said the minister was keen to learn how EID works on her farm, its pros, its cons and the financial costs to the producer. Natasha stressed to the minister the importance of creating a national database before EID tagging becomes mandatory in 2025. Yeah, so for me as a feedlotter, uh, having compulsory EIDs in sheep will be a massive benefit um, in terms of feedlot. I currently use reusable EID tags. So when I buy in sheep, I will put the tag in and before they go on the truck to go to market to the processors, I then take that tag out. With a tag costing about $1.50 to $2 um, and I've got the tags I'm using now I've had for six years. So if I run 10,000 sheep through my feedlot, that's a savings of $60,000 over six years by using those reusable tags. I'm also um, produce our own lambs on our Kangaroo Island property. We'd have 6,000 lambs come off there. And at the moment we don't put EID tags in them. We just stick with the normal all flex tags that has our pick number on it because that's about 36 cents for a tag. So yeah, it's a, a massive cost involved there. But the benefit for me having the EID tags is that I get production benefit from that. I can monitor the sheep's growth rates and performance. And then if a sheep isn't growing or performing above a threshold that I deem it needs to for me to be making money from that lamb, then it is culled and, and put on the truck. But from a lifetime traceability perspective, yeah, I think there'll be a few a few hiccups. And I know a lot of producers don't see how that's going to benefit them if they're just breeding a lamb that runs in the paddock and then goes straight to the processes that, that they're having to have that extra cost with actually not seeing any benefit. But I see a real opportunity for the, the processes to feed more information back to the producer about how that lamb has performed on the hook and that would be where me as a producer would able to make up some of that costs perhaps involved in putting that electronic identification tag in their ear because I'd be able to manage my sheep better so they perform better on the on the hook as a carcass. And as you just said there is quite a, a, a significant price difference in those EID tags do you think, as Victoria has done, uh, there'll need to be significant subsidies from the South Australian government if they want this goal to be achievable? I would hope that with the increase in demand, with it being mandatory, that there will be a reduction in the tag cost. I don't know that it would cost that much more like the companies to produce, but with the lack of demand for an EIP tag, probably playing part in the cost. So hopefully once it's mandated, 
the cost will naturally come down as more are made. A subsidy would definitely get producers on board, but whether that's just a Band-Aid fix, who knows, but a subsidy would probably help farmers get started with the process. And obviously the, the 2025 deadline has been met with a few mixed reactions. From your understanding of yesterday's visit by Minister Scriven, is there talk of behind-the-scenes work happening with industry and government? Um, I was a little bit hard to gauge, gauge that. Um, I, I know there is some. Talking with Travis from Livestock SA, there's work on the national database, which I think is a big part of it as well, that it's a lot of work for the producer sort of transferring and uploading all these tag numbers and this data with no feedback or benefit for the producer. So I think they're working on a, on a national database that would be a bit more user-friendly and have um, more benefits for the producer. One of the things that we did stress was that about it needing to be a national system it creates little hiccups for the producers if every state is operating a little bit differently. Um, if it was a national system and everyone operated the same, I think that would take out a lot of those little hiccups and hurdles too, with some states needing to put in transporter details on the paper version at the moment and other states don't need to do that. So it's a little bit messy. So a, nas- a, a national system we sort of emphasised to Minister Scriven would be a much better approach. And what was her response to that? Uh, yeah, she agreed. I think she's still gathering a lot of information on um, how the system's going to work and, and listening from all the different stakeholders as to what people are wanting and how people think it would work. So she's not opposed to the idea. Um, yeah, so she's just taking on board all the different perspectives. Well, all, all states have agreed to come on board by that 1st of January 2025. My understanding is that there's no end date. So any lambs born from then on will need to have this EID tagging. But obviously producers will have stock on their farm already pre that date. And I'm not sure that there's a date being set as to when every livestock on your property has to have an EID tag. I've heard that New South Wales have put in place 2027 um, and some of the processors have put in their own dates that they won't accept stock after 1st of Jan 2027 unless they have an EID tag. So that's kind of been driven a bit by the processors and not so much by the government, but whether they sort of just then adopt and, and follow the lead of the processors, we'll sort of wait and see, I guess. York Peninsula livestock farmer Natasha Westbrook speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Some concerns, though, have been raised by graziers in the southeast. There was a meeting there recently to discuss this mandate for electronic ID tags in sheep and how it would work in South Australia. Dewan Williams is a lower southeast sheep producer. He's on the steering committee looking at the issue and he has concerns similar to those raised by the far west New South Wales graziers. Good afternoon, Miss Williams. Good afternoon, Cassie. What do you make of the information that's come out of yesterday's meeting in New South Wales that uh, some exemptions have been granted at least when it comes to rangeland goats? Oh, I think it's a wonderful thing for the, for the guys there that are farming and, and selling goats off of their land. Um, it shows a bit of common sense in, in this rollout of mandating electronic ear tags in sheep and goats to uh, down the lines that there, there are avenues of tag-free movements which will not compromise traceability um, and are sensible and cost-effective. This is happening in New South Wales, though, and South Australia is going about their consultation in a different way. States are all going about it in their own way. How much will this affect, though, the overall effect of the 
the mandate if states are going about it in a different way? Uh, that's hard for me to answer. We, we've been told, and, and I'm a member of the South Australian Steering Committee designing the implementation of, of this mandate, uh, we're being told very often that it's, it needs to be a harmonised system with the other states, which, to my, to my mind, doesn't really mean anything other than the fact that our recommendations will be taken to a body later after, after we've designed what's best for our state, and then they will try and develop a system that can be spread across the country which has similarities, I, I guess is the best way to put it. But... Each state has been asked to design a system that suits their their industries in their own state. So first and foremost, I think each state committees or groups that are doing this, that that should be their their agenda. Suit what design what is going to suit their states the best. You have raised concerns at your local livestock SA meeting. What are the main ones coming out of the the meetings that you've had? We've been told that the entire endeavour of this EID mandate is about traceability, and and it is. It's the foot and mouth scare that we had last year um, has certainly triggered a reaction. The claims that we're going to get improved and increased marketability from this system, I I, I disagree with. I I can't. I haven't seen any proof. I haven't. I've been calling for proof, and I haven't been given any. I mean, the fact that the Victorians have had this system now for it's over four years, come out five years, and a vast majority of lambs that are sold to slaughter out of South Australia go through Victorian Meatworks. Now, there's no price difference in the in the meat that is being supplied from South Australia than there is from Victoria. So to claim that there's a marketing advantage in having electronic ear tags is, is completely disproven. Where is the steering committee up to in terms of consultation before taking whatever the plan is to the, the Prime Minister's Minister in South Australia? Uh, yeah, it's, it's we're we're a fair way through the process. Um, it's been split into two phases. Phase one has has just been completed, um, which was designing costings costing models. Um, phase two is just beginning, which is now now concerned with designing the implementation of uh, the system in our state. So I, th- I think it's another couple of months before before we have to have that prepared and presented to Livestock SA, who then in turn presented to our minister. What sort of level of support are you, you hearing from the consultation you're doing when it comes to support for an EID system in South Australia? The consultation with, with our committee, I, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting any support for, for an exemption on EID tags, which is, which is I'm finding quite frustrating, as, as you can imagine. Um, I'm, a, I'm a full-time sheep producer, um, fifth generation. That's that's what my family have, have done ever since we've been here. So I find it very frustrating, and I, and I'm not getting a lot of support from from our committee or from Livestock SA for that matter. But I am getting a lot of support from fellow farmers, um, but not only in my own region, but from across the state. Uh, I called a public meeting in Lucendale a month or so ago, and had a fantastic turnout of. of 40 or 50 sheep producers and also got 40 odd apologies and letters and messages of support for what I'm trying to do. So I believe that that I, I have a, a system that I've proposed that, that is supported by the sheep farmer um, and I do feel that I'm not being listening to further up the line. Have you had a chance yet to put your ideas to the Minister, Claire Scriven? Uh, I have I have talked to Claire Scriven about it. Yes, yes, and she 
she was very receptive, um, and I've I've given her a number of documents which I had presented to our committee. So so yes, she she is aware of of what I'm advocating for and what um, I'm saying that the sheep producers are calling for. Yes. Well, there's still some ways to go on this, but thank you so much for joining me today. We'll keep following this topic. Uh, it's a pleasure, Cassie, and thank you for your time. Dewan Williams there from the South East, a South East sheep producer there, airing some of his concerns about mandatory EID tags. We'll keep following that. In a development in the Riverland, a new Queensland fruit fly outbreak has been declared in Chafee after male fruit flies were found in fruit fly traps on a commercial property. This takes the number of fruit fly detections to 28. Growers and residents are being urged to search their address for um, the interact in, on the interactive fruit fly map to just see whether they're with within that uh, red outbreak area or the 15-kilometre yellow suspension uh, area. Fruit fly officers from Persa will be applying organic bait and checking fruit in this newly affected area to continue their work in uh, all the red areas. So uh, it's unfortunate news that there's been another detection of fruit fly in the Riverland. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now where Senior Forecaster Mark Analak has the latest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. That change came across possibly just in time to um, deal with some of the fires that were seen yesterday afternoon. We're seeing far more favourable conditions for firefighting efforts uh, over Lower Air Peninsula at the moment. Um, as you say, the change went through through Port Lincoln uh, probably about uh, late afternoon, mid to late afternoon yesterday, and overnight we saw that uh, change move over agricultural areas. The change itself now is probably sitting, uh, it's gone through Woomera, um, it's probably through the southern parts of the Flinders district and it has gone through Renmark now, so the temperature for 40 degrees at Renmark uh, probably won't be achieved uh, today. They've, they're now settling back to around about 33, 34 degrees, um, but the change is sort of hovering in that sort of southern parts of the pastoral districts and, and Flinders district. That means Agricultural areas will remain in this uh, onshore, moist, milder um, southerly winds um, for the next couple of days with a high-pressure system south of the Bight directing these milder southerly winds. However, northern parts of the state, with that trough still lingering in the north, very hot conditions still. And uh, we look at some temperatures as we speak are in the high 30s and low 40s across parts of the northeast pastoral district uh, and northwest pastoral district now. So uh, very hot conditions remaining in, in place across the north. And we do have a severe heat wave uh, warning out for the northwest pastoral district. Um, for the next couple of days, as I said, that high pressure system will remain sort of south of the bite or there'll be a ridge of high pressure to the south of the, the state, uh, maintaining these milder conditions for agricultural areas. Uh, the trough will linger in the north of the state, maintaining very hot temperatures across the north and, and northwest. And as we move through the weekend and into early part of next week, uh, eventually that high pressure system drifts across the um, Bass Strait and into the Tasman. Northerly winds return and very hot, those very hot temperatures start to feed back down. It'll probably start on Monday, Tuesday with the, hot, the very hot conditions moving across the western parts of the state. And as we move into Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we see those very hot uh, conditions and severe heatwave conditions pushing further south over the remaining parts of the state. So at this stage, uh, we maintain milder conditions over the agricultural areas for the weekend and into the early part of next week. 
very hot conditions in the north will start to feed back down again over agricultural areas mid to late next week. So at the moment we just have that one warning for severe heatwave out in the northwest but uh, expect that to be extended across the state uh, as we move into next week. Um, I think that's pretty much all from me, Cassie. Thanks so much for that update, Mark Anilak from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the Upper Western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. Things are going to stay quite warm, though. Uh, there's a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Is there a chance of rain elsewhere? Thunderstorm, though, might uh, be around in the afternoon and evening in the east. Winds could pick up in the morning. But uh, overnight, the temperatures will drop to between 22 to 27 degrees, but the daytime temperature is still reaching those low 40s. The lower western will be sunny tomorrow and again a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Overnight there, dropping to 17 to 24 degrees, but again the daytime temperature is reaching a rather warm 35 to 41 degrees. I've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello. If you've just joined me, welcome to the program. I am Cassie Huff. Now, when I was a child on a long road trip, my uh, parents and sisters and I used to play a game. Mum and Dad would say a food and we'd have to say where it comes from. Now, growing up on a farm, we probably had a little bit of an advantage, but it is the lament of many people that children don't know where their food comes from. Meat and Livestock Australia is trying to address this with a new teaching resource. There's quite a disconnect between what students are actually eating and their understanding of where it's come from. So anything that helps to open their eyes to production systems and alternatives within those production systems as well is really crucial. More on that soon. And I'll tell you why you might have come across a few tractors in McLaren Vale today. That's coming up. But first, here's the latest with Matt Coleman. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Country Fire Service says Port Lincoln will likely be affected by toxic smoke for a number of days. Firefighters have contained a bushfire there. It's burnt approximately 143 hectares of land, but a nearby waste management facility remains on fire and is causing toxic smoke to drift across the area. An at-home health monitoring kit for regional South Australians is being rolled out to help provide 24-hour medical assistance. The Country SA Primary Health Network says patients will be able to monitor their vital signs and be assessed by a nurse or a doctor through a video link 24 hours a day. The federal government-funded service is designed for patients at risk of hospitalisation and requires a GP referral. And more crucial transport infrastructure is opening to all traffic along River Murray communities as floodwaters continue to recede. Book Penong Road and Kingston Road have been reopened to heavy vehicles after they were closed for months due to high river levels. Morgan Ferry has also reopened this morning to light vehicles with the local council continuing to assess safety conditions. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, uh, the Murray-Darling Basin, we've been following this very closely and uh, by all accounts and purposes, it doesn't look like it's going to be delivered on time. Commitments to return water to the environment by June 2024 are coming up hundreds of gigalitres short. So 
What's next for Australia's largest river network? Well, National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has been taking a look at this for Landline this weekend. Kath, we've seen so much water through the basin over summer. Does this mean really the rivers have enough water in them now? <laughs> G'day, Cass. Well, look, for those people who have had their businesses and homes and farms flooded, I'm sure they've seen enough water through the system this summer to last them a while. But on paper, the Murray-Darling Basin hasn't received as much water or had as much water remain in the rivers as what it legally should. The Murray-Darling Basin plan was legislated, if I could just go back to a few basics, Uh, A decade ago, in 2012, setting out how water should be shared between um, farming, communities and the environment. Basically, too much water had been extracted from the rivers. Now, that plan said that by June of next year, 2,750 gigalitres of water needed to remain in the river each year to benefit the environment. Towards this 2750 target, more than 2,100 gigalitres has been recovered. So getting up there, most of that has come from farming. But as a lot of people listening in South Australia will be aware, there's a separate parcel of water, 450 gigalitres, which was to come from efficiency measures. It was, in fact, uh, promised in return for South Australia's support of the plan. That's how we got this 450 of upwater. Uh, And to date, there's just been five gigalitres of water recovered to that. So you can sort of see quite easily how those targets won't be met uh, by June of next year. So what do people who live and work in the basin think about this? They've been hearing about it for a long time. Mm. The deadline's approaching. What are they thinking? They've heard about it, they've seen it, and depending on where they live in the system, um, they're probably well and truly sick of it. Um, it's a really funny one, Cass. Every person you speak to has a different experience of water um, and the rivers throughout the basin, and f- for that person, there's another three counterpoints of view, it seems. Um, as part of this story on the weekend, it's going out on, on Sunday, we've spoken to some... Um, we've got a South Australian farmer. We spoke to Colin Grundy, who is the last farmer on the system down there at the Murray Mouth, and he's got a fantastic perspective, but basically a front seat to basically and politics. His family's farmed there uh, for more than a century. And so he can see really what is coming down the river. And while he does say that the environment has benefited from the water that has been recovered towards the environment, um, that has been recovered towards those targets, uh, he says there's more work to be done. He's really fed up with the politics of what's going on. We've spoken to traditional owners who say that the water can be managed in better ways. Things can be done differently that will have a massive impact on the health of the system. And we've spoken to irrigators as well, and this is um, quite, an uh, depending on what you grow and where you grow it and how long you've been there and how much money you've got in the bank, it seems that irrigators have got a really different take on what's going on at the moment because... Um, this talk of whether or not the Commonwealth comes in and buys back more water from irrigators in order to meet those shortfalls is really heating up. And, you know, as part of the story, we heard from one irrigators uh, experienced a real downturn in their industry the last couple of years. They've been growing wine grapes. Um, You know about the impact of China pulling out of the 
the red wine mark or the tariffs, putting the tariffs. Um, they've dealt with wet seasons, unusually wet seasons, um, COVID-19. There's been a lot of reasons for that downturn. And the prospect of the Commonwealth opening up the checkbook, perhaps potentially at the right price, might be an opportunity for some people to exit that industry. While others are really vehemently opposed um, to the idea of buybacks, they say that it's to the detriment of communities. We actually hear from a GP as part of the story who says that he's seen firsthand um, the impact of Basin Plan. It's an interesting thing to go to the GP to talk about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, but he says he sees firsthand the mental health implications of, of what's going on. And uh, as you'd be well aware, there's been the latest report cut on the Murray-Darling Basin mm. showing the, the lack of improvement in the last six months as well. So there's a lot playing into this and some have speculated that, that some of this work is laying the groundwork for, as you've said, water buybacks uh, from the government. So I guess that's all yet to be seen and uh, the state water yeah. ministers are meeting I- soon too. Yeah, they're actually going to meet next week. And I'm glad you brought up the authorities' uh, report card, Cassie, because, um, you know, people talk about the role of farming in returning waters to the rivers. And, and it is important to note that farmers have made a lot of efficiencies. They've become a lot smarter about how they use water. Um, and much of the water that has been recovered towards the targets has come from farming. But there's also meant to be more than 600 gigalitres of water um come from state-run projects. They're funded by the Commonwealth. Um, have we mentioned that there's $13 billion of taxpayer funds being put towards this Murray-Darling Basin plan? And these state-run projects, while some of them have been completed, uh, there are some that are so far um, from being met. The Basin authorities forecast a shortfall of half of the water that is meant to be recovered again by June of next year. And it's suggested that it may take even a decade beyond June of next year to complete some of the works that are involved in delivering the water from some of those projects. So there's a lot that goes into what's happening. Um, It's not a simple... Uh, policy area, but um, it's certainly, we can see now that the Basin Plan won't achieve what it set out to do when it was legislated in 2012. Absolutely. And uh, water will always be an issue on the driest inhabited continent, regardless of whether you're in a a wet time or a dry time. So I'm sure it will make for some uh, must-watch watching (laughs) on on Sunday on Landline. That was uh, Kath Sullivan. So you can see her story on Sunday on ABC TV uh, or, or on iView. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Cass. Cass Sullivan there. Now, moving away from the river to the wine region of McLaren Vale, and if you're driving around McLaren Vale, you might have noticed a, a few tractors on the road today. Grape growers are marking the start of the harvest in the region with a drink and a palmy at the McLaren Vale pub. And it's a, a chance to get together and perhaps remind people of uh, just how much activity is on the roads uh, during harvest. And to, uh, to find out why this has come about, I'm joined by one of the organisers and uh, wine producer and grape grower, Jock Harvey. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So have you arrived at the pub yet? Have you driven your tractor down? Yeah, took the tractor down to the pub and uh, a group of others have come down as well and just uh, just having a quiet lemon squash and, uh, and a bite of lunch. <laughs> well, uh, it's a chance to remind people that this is starting. And um, how long has this been going for? Because I know the ringing of the bell, uh, the bell ringing in McLaren Vale marks the start of the, the season, but is this a new tradition? Well, it's yeah, it's not a new well, not a tradition yet, but it's uh, just to remind people that you know more and more tourists and more and more local traffic and uh, 
you know, tractors obviously move slowly, trucks move slowly, and so do harvesters. And it's just just to ask people to be patient for the next eight weeks and uh, give people a little bit of leeway as, as we're passing from vineyard to winery and so forth. A lot of the focus on the, the wine industry in recent years has been on uh, the, the Chinese tariffs and the export market, and uh, that has seen big producing regions like the Riverland, Riverina, Sunraysia regions uh, uh, come to the fore. That they are some of the regions that have really felt the pinch, but every region really has felt this. How are farmers in McLaren Vale feeling heading into harvest this year? You're right. There is a trickle-down effect, uh, both in terms of China you know, Russia and the European economy. But, you know, and a shout out to all of the fellow farmers out there that have, you know, been working through what's been a challenging couple of years. Um, McLaren Vale, perhaps a little like the Barossa, but I'd say more so than the Barossa, is a little bit insulated where we have other markets and we have quite high visitation and tourism. Um, but that's not to say that there's been a significant effect from export markets closing up. And the other effect of export markets closing is there's much greater concentration into other domestic markets and direct-to-consumer markets. So there has been an effect. Um, we're hoping there's light at the end of the tunnel relatively soon. You know, growers uh, and you know people in the industry are always optimistic, but the reality is it's having a significant economic effect. And, you know, that, that ripples down to people's relationships and, and quite frankly, people's mental health. So we're conscious of that. And this is just a small effort to draw people together and uh, and just have a chat. As you will know, male farmers are not very good at talking and, uh, and there are dire consequences, um, you know, when there is an economic turndown, uh, when, you know, when farmers particularly feel that there isn't any light at the end of the tunnel. And have you had many turn up today to perhaps get together and uh, uh, <laughs> brace themselves for the coming harvest? Yeah, no, the place is full now. It's uh, People have come down and, uh, and it's great because we're seeing, uh, you know, winemakers, uh, you know, patting growers on the back and uh, you know, uh, we've got a very high population of, uh, you know, female winemakers and growers and they've joined us as well. So it's a good little community. Um, it's going to be... Uh, Hard, uh, you know, eight or 12 weeks of harvest in the sense of, you know, long hours and unpredictability. But, you know, while the crops are very light this year, the quality looks fantastic. So uh, we'll push through this one and then um, hope that, you know, our fortunes change a little bit in the coming years. Is that possibly an ideal outcome after a very large harvest in 2021 and an average one last year? There's a lot of wine being held in in tanks now around Australia. Would a lighter, high-quality harvest be just spot on for growers this year? Most definitely. It it does spread the pain a little bit. The national crop has often been between 1.8 and 2.2 million tonnes. The most recent forecast from all the way through Griffith, through the Riverland, um, and then the early picks that have already started, suggest that the national pick might be between 950,000 tonnes and 1.3 million tonnes. So a significant drop, um, and uh, obviously people are going to work through the stocks that they have, and, uh, and a lighter vintage, while it's painful economically, it um, it does actually help our situation turn around. And... You mentioned the, that it's a lighter crop. How much disease pressure has McLaren Vale faced this year, given it was quite wet, particularly in early summer? Look, we've been very fortunate. Um, you know, uh, technology, both um, in terms of machinery and chemistry, and uh, the skill of the grower has meant that we've been working very hard, you know, since bud burst. 
that's not to say there hasn't been some pockets of disease, but the fruit that we've picked is nice and clean, and it's uh, you know the crops the crops have been light. The first couple of picks have been at least fifty percent down, so um, it's tracking the way we expected. Um, and I know that some of the growers in the Riverland are getting a pretty hard time by you know some of the wineries that are rejecting fruit pretty much without reason. And uh, while that's disappointing, it's not unexpected behaviour. Um, we just hope that um, you know those growers that are you know producing below the cost of production um, can either you know survive or transition into a uh, a different crop if that's what they need to do. Well, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. I know for people who aren't doing it on purpose, it's not a great thing. But the thought of having a few Botrytis wines coming through this year, I, I, I haven't had one for a while. So uh, we might we see some more Botrytis-type wines? Uh, well, probably not out of McLaren Vale. I've got to say the guys have got some rather than do a great one. But, um, no, look, I think what we're going to find, Cassie, this year is that uh, fruit's picked at its optimum. Um, there will be fruit um, in perhaps in irrigated areas that um, is either put on the ground or left on the vine. Uh, the reality is uh, farmers have a real reluctance to sell fruit at uh, a very, very heavily discounted price. And, and that's, that's a sensible thing to do because that just exacerbates the problem. So uh, we'll pick the best possible fruit, make some fantastic wine, and then in uh, six to 12 months we'll... Um, Hopefully look at some markets open up and uh, things turn around a bit. In the Riverland, a couple of measures have been looked at to deal with the issue of uh, supply and uh, demand at the moment. And some people have elected to mothball vineyards. Others are grafting white wine varieties onto red vine grapes. Has the same thing happened in, Ma- in uh, McLaren Vale? Look, there are, a couple of, there are a couple of Chardonnay vineyards down here that have been grafted to Shiraz and one of the growers I spoke to earlier is going to cut the Shiraz off and let the Chardonnay grow back. Um, that's a little bit of the, um, you know, the nature of demand of different varieties. What we do see down here, though, is there's quite a lot of transition into more um, temperate climate varieties, more Mediterranean, uh, lower latitude varieties. So perhaps moving away from Shiraz into uh, varieties that are closer to the equator, like Nero Davila, um, you know, that can handle the heat. So, we're seeing that. We're also seeing that in um, in other areas like the Riverland, and you can probably see, you know, companies like Ricoterra have led the way in transitioning away from commodity varieties into specialist varieties. So um, the industry does evolve, um, but pretty soon things will come back online, and the varieties that didn't sell six years ago will be back in demand. So it's a matter of being patient. Unfortunately, with grapevines, you can't turn your crop around in six months like you can with tomatoes and cucumbers, but for all those farmers that have sat through wool and then beef and then, you know, fat lambs, it's uh, they know the cycle and uh, it's just a matter of being patient. Absolutely. Trends change over time, but uh, hopefully you are able to get a bite of it at some point. Uh, well, I hope you have a, a lovely get-together and this is a smooth and successful harvest for all the grape growers and winemakers in South Australia, but at the moment we're focusing on, on McLaren Vows. So enjoy your drink in a palmy at the pub and I hope people do take care on the roads around the, the harvesters at this harvest. Thanks, Cassie. Appreciate your support. Jock Harvey there, a winemaker and grape grower from McLaren Vale. It is 13 minutes to one.
This week on Landline, Australia's growing love of cherries. I find it very hard to go past a ripe cherry on a tree. <laughs> Just put it that way. I come out going, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that many cherries. And teaching kids rural skills early at cattle camp. You've got to have um, patience, discipline, all that stuff. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. What do you do to teach your children about where their food comes from? Uh, We used to play a game, as I mentioned earlier, where mum and dad would... uh, tell us a food, say yogurt, and we'd have to say where that came from, which animal or plant that came from. And uh, it seems to be um, perhaps not done as much. Uh, Many children uh, are confused about where their meat actually comes from. So I'd love to know how you at home are trying to address that. You can text me on 0467 922 or phone 1300 222 because a survey found that kids misunderstood the meat industry in particular. So Good Meat, an online platform created by Meat and Livestock Australia, has been launched as a resource to educate children on animal welfare, sustainability and nutrition. Now this resource has been created with teachers for teachers. It's aligned with the curriculum from foundation to year 10 and Samantha Jamison, MLA's group manager, spoke to Dimitri Panagiotaris about the importance of bringing agriculture into the classroom. We think it's really important that kids learn where their food comes from and particularly you know, these days and COVID's just exacerbated it. Not many kids really get the opportunity to go out onto a farm and learn more about um, how their food is produced. And, and there's less than two in five um, Australians that have actually visited a farm. So we think it's really important that children do get to know more about where their food comes from. And in our various surveys and things that we do, we know that there's a lot of support, particularly from um, parents. Over 70% of people are saying that they think that content on the red meat industry should be taught in school. So we know that there is a desire to have more relevant Australian content in the schools and learning more about where their food comes from. And particularly these days, we find in the school curriculum that there's a much more about uh, the sustainability and what food producers are doing to ensure that the food we're producing is sustainable. So throughout the, the content, there's a lot of information in there about how the industry is becoming carbon neutral and all the different investments and work that is being done. And from that research, what were some of the misconceptions that were raised from that data? From the parents, um, from uh, our surveys from people who are 18 through to about 65 and it's metro-based, and they are the ones, about 72% have said that they think it's important that children learn more about uh, where their food comes from. But there have been other surveys in the past where they've asked children, you know, where do you think XYZ comes from? And there is a lot of misunderstanding um, amongst children as to where their food actually comes from. So... For you know, the past decade or so, there's been a lot more talk within agriculture as a whole about we need to help get children to know more about where their food comes from. So this is just one of the various initiatives that we have in our school education program to help children understand more about how food is produced. Samantha Jamison, MLA Group Manager. Sue Pratt is the lead ag teacher for South Australia, a role funded by the South Australian Grains Industry. She says it's good to see a comprehensive resource created by industry for schools. 
When asked if she's noticed a lack of understanding amongst children as to where their meat comes from, here's what she had to say. Absolutely. There's, there's quite a disconnect between what students are actually eating and their understanding of where it's come from. So anything that helps to open their eyes to production systems and alternatives within those production systems as well is really crucial. And we really appreciate um, resources that are ready to go and that clearly link the concepts that are prioritised in the Australian curriculum with what's actually happening in industry. So to have an industry produced resource really helps teachers make those connections between what is happening in the real world and the choices that kids are making as consumers. They Even, even little people are consumers um, and making decisions about what they want to include in their diet. And uh, it's, it is really important for them to have an understanding of where that has come from and um, how animals are managed in Australia. There's a lot of misconception around that and just a lot of complete gap. So it is uh, really important to see that filled. And there is a lot of things that are just instantly ready to go. So there's posters and PDFs and graphics and videos and things that a, a teacher can just pick up instantly and drop in to a program that they may already have established. On the other hand, there are really comprehensive teaching sequences in there as well. So if a teacher hasn't got much experience in agriculture and, and we're finding a lot of our ag teachers are now not necessarily trained or don't have industry experience, there is a really comprehensive set of well-written teaching sequences in there across a whole range of topics and uh, they are ready to go. So I think teachers will be able to dip into it straight away. And the resource is encouraging honest discussions about things like climate change and welfare. They haven't shied away from those topics. And um, I think students really want to know about those things and, and how an industry is dealing with them. So it was good to see that there's quite a bit of teaching sequence in there about um, how the red meat industries are working towards carbon neutrality and um, how they're taking care of animal welfare and they're not shying away from those topics. They're encouraging uh, discussion and they're providing resources to provide facts and figures for students so that they're getting an accurate representation of what's happening and not a skewed view of it. Lead Ag Teacher for South Australia, Sue Pratt, ending that report by Dimitria Panagiotaris. And uh, you can head to goodmeat.com.au if you'd like to check out that educational resource. I've had a text in uh, from someone anonymously saying most kids will not want to eat meat if they find out early enough that it's the flesh of slaughtered animals. Thanks so much for your text. I'd love to know how you might be educating your children about where their food comes from. You can text me on 0467 922 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Now uh, we'll move away from meat now to uh, tree crops. And uh, would you ever consider employing a robot in your business? With years of research behind them now, farmers are taking them seriously. A large berry farm in Tasmania has shipped sixteen robots out from the UK to pick strawberries roughly for every minute. Site manager Eva Tildechrist explains how they work. A robot will, uh, will uh, scan the crop and see if it can find any ripe berries, which is red berries of a certain degree that we have put in our settings. It will then try to find a clear vector so it can pick the berry, so it has to see the stalk clearly, and then it will attempt to pick it. Once it's picked the berry, it will dip it into a box in the middle of, of the chassis, which we call the inspection chamber, which has a 360-degree camera which take a photo all the way around 
that you would make a quality assessment and decide whether this is a good quality berry or if this has to be put in the waste bin. And after that it will put it in a punnet in the tray on the edge of the robot. So while it's scanning inside this uh, chamber it will also do an estimation of uh, how heavy is the berry. So it will know what punnet in the tray it will put it on to reach the target punnet weight. It travels on caterpillar tracks and uh, that way it can move in quite difficult terrain and you don't really have to prepare your, your ground for, to accommodate them. How much manual labour do you need to, to check on the progress of the robots, like emptying the trays or if, if little issues crop up and they, they stop moving? Not a whole lot. At the moment we're managing eight robots per person. That's hopefully going to go up to 12 towards the end of the season. How are they powered? Two strong batteries inside them, which uh, will give you a good good amount of, uh, I think, almost up to eight hours of running time. And then we will bring them back into a shipping container charging station and charge them overnight. They're all connected to, uh, to a Wi-Fi system, but that's more for us to be able to to remotely control them from their operators having a tablet in their head and, and they can have a good overview of how the robots are doing. They know how many berries they picked, they know if it's time to swap the trays out and uh, they can identify any fault coming up. But they're running on a, on a computer inside them. They're not just picking as they run up the road, they're obviously taking loads and loads of images to find where the berry is, but that, those images can also be pro processed to determine the health of your crop and also do yield forecasting so you know how much harvest you expect in the future. They don't pick as fast as your staff here. No. So what's the financial advantage to having these robots? They don't pick as fast as a human, but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage, <laughs> to put it like that. And they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm. And economically, it's a, it's a reliable way of, uh, of harvesting because you will know your cost of harvest because of the constant rate you're harvesting at. And obviously having many machines per operator will also bring the cost down. It's a peace of mind for the growers to have in case you can't get the workforce you need. For example, last year we, when we had COVID, we just could not get enough people on the farm to do the work and we struggled to keep up with the harvest. And obviously robots don't get COVID, they don't roll an ankle, they, uh, they're pretty reliant workers. How often would the robots make a mistake? Pick a berry that's the wrong colour, for example? At the moment we're seeing about one every hundred berries, which is very, very low compared to human pickers. They do probably rather miss a few berries, which is something we're always working on, but they seem to pick a good, good quality. It's a work in progress. It's, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's, it's something that gradually is going to be introduced into farming, I believe. Uh, same as uh, 150 years ago, no one would use a tractor or consider using a tractor for farming, and now it's a part of everyday farming life. Eva Tilda Chris from UK company Dogtooth Technologies chatting to Larissa Smith about using robots on a strawberry farm. It does sound very high tech. That's all I have time for in the program today. But go online to abc.net.au slash rural for more rural news over the weekend. It's coming up to one o'clock. Time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. 
Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.